Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But, despite this oneness, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says... When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children who are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Identity number 11. This is called true greatness. And uh, as Brandon said, we're teaching through a second time the first part of chapter four of the book of Ephesians because there's so much content. And I think that after Brandon taught it and after I teach it, there will still be even more that you could say about this passage because it's so thick and good and rich. Uh, But let's talk about this. Paul says in verse one, I therefore... (laughs) So the therefore, obviously theologians, it's therefore a reason, right? Um, So he's saying this therefore is basically saying in light of everything that I have just said, right? So what did we just complete before we got to this uh, chapter four? Well, chapters one through three, right? Um, He's saying in light of chapters one through three, this is how I'm going to tell you to walk. Because chapters one through three were thick in theology. They were thick in an understanding of who you are, your identity. They were thick in an understanding of Christ and your identity being based on who Christ is. 
They were rich in just a vision of how this has all come to pass. Uh, Paul says he lists out your spiritual blessings in Christ. Right then he prays for the Ephesian church. Then he tells them that you were uh, saved by grace through faith. You've been uh, resurrected. You were walking dead in your trespasses and now you're alive in Christ. Right? He talks about the unity of the body. Uh, He talks about uh, the Jews and Gentiles being brought together, as Brandon talked about, into a new humanity. Uh, He prays for them again in chapter 3. And this is all really thick doctrine. And some people will break up the book of Ephesians this way. The first three chapters are doctrine. The last three chapters are duty. In light of this doctrine, what is your duty? <laughs> Come on, guys. I thought we were all mature here. Uh, so if you eat some doctrine, what is your duty going to be? <laughs> it's called grounding your doctrine. Yeah, grounding your doctrine. <laughs> I want you to be rooted and grounded in your duty. <laughs> okay. <It's time> stuff. <laughs> I'm dead. Okay. Let me ask this question. I think it's an age-old question. What is greatness? What does greatness look like? I say it's an age-old question because we're not the first ones to ask it. In fact, I think humanity through time has been asking the question, what is greatness? The great kingdoms have basically said greatness is about wealth and power and control and control over commerce and roads and the ability to maintain peace. As as the Roman Empire put it, Greatness was Caesar and his ability to offer you Pax Romana, which is a Latin term for Roman peace, right? But it was not peace as in the biblical understanding of peace. It was peace at the edge of a sword. If you dare come against us, you just, you just don't want to come against us, right? <laughs> uh, but what is greatness? And I think that the seeds for the desire of greatness are inside of all of our hearts. And we were created that way. We are created that at the end of our life, for all of us to feel fulfilled, fulfilled, complete, whole, and like we live life well. We've lived life in a great way. We've achieved greatness. What we all hope to hear is at the end of our days, well done, good and faithful servant. Right? Now this desire, the seed of this desire, which is in our hearts, is often in society and in culture and in kingdoms. It's often confused. This desire is there for every person. But it's often confused that it can be sought after in wealth, fame, power, 
uh, fulfillment in sexual desires, whatever, uh, in knowledge, in wisdom, in, in any avenue that you could seemingly pursue in this world. But this heavenly desire cannot be satisfied by earthly things. So I think to this desire, humans basically respond in two ways. Number one, and I think this is super easy to spot, is overt pride, right? This is what, uh, what you see in the great kingdoms that conquer the world. Uh, this is what you see in uh, people who have like sort of the superiority complex, who have to go dominate others to feel validated in themselves. For them to feel great, they have to go be the greatest, some people might seek after this on the, in the sports arena, on the football field, on the basketball court, uh, whatever the case is. If they win in that arena, they have achieved greatness. But is that true greatness? And I don't think it is. Um, we see examples of this overt pride in the Bible. Uh, what about Cain and Abel? Right? I will just mash those up and was like cable. Right? So the, in the incident of cable, we have two brothers bringing forth before the Lord their offerings. Right? And God is pleased with Abel's offering and less pleased with Cain's offering. And because Cain's self worth or his sense of real, true greatness was wrapped up in his gift. When his brother's was preferred, he was moved to anger. And we see the first incident of murder in the Bible. He murders his brother. Right? And then when the Lord speaks to him about it, how does he respond in a very infantile way? Right? He goes... What? Am I my brother's keeper? Right? He sounds like, like a teenager. No offense, guys. But, <laughs> but he, he responds, and that response shows the infancy that is really in his heart. Okay, so what about another example? There's the brothers and Joseph. We'll mash those together and get... <laughs> oh, so, so the brothers and Joseph. So Joseph has a vision or a dream, and he sees himself before his brothers, and he's like lifted up in glory, and his brothers are bowing down before him. Right? If I had older brothers, I don't know if I had that dream, if I would tell them about it. But Joseph did, and they didn't like it. They didn't like this idea of them bowing down before Joseph. Well, now this is all metaphoric and symbolic, and there's much deeper meanings that we're not going to get into about this dream. But because of their insecurity, right, of his or Joseph's superseding their greatness with his own, because their fear over them bowing down before Joseph rather than the youngest brother bowing down and serving them, 
what they do? They threw him in a hole and they left him for dead. Right? As far as they knew, he was as good as dead. They believed he was. Uh, we have the rich young ruler right, who approaches Jesus. And he says, essentially, what do I need to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says to him, sell all your possessions and come after me, right? Well, that says, well, that just shows the deep wisdom and insight of Jesus to put one single sentence or prompt right at the heart of the issue because he knew where this guy was. Where did this rich young ruler find his identity? Where did he find his sense of greatness? It was in his possessions. It was in his monetary worth, right? So because Jesus says one statement that really just plunges to the heart of the issue, sell all your possessions. And he goes, hang on a second. If I sell, if I sell all my possessions... I'm not me anymore. If I sell my possessions and follow you, I am no longer the rich young ruler. And that's who I am. That's my identity. That's my meaning, purpose, and significance. That is my sense of what makes me great. What about the disciples? Disciples, we see so many instances of them with Jesus, traveling around, doing his ministry with him, being discipled. And they would often get into these arguments, as recorded in several places in the gospel. Who is the greatest among us, right? Says Jesus is off here going and doing his ministry. And the disciples are back here on the road kind of bickering and like, oh, who's the greatest, right? And their assumption, first of all, is that amongst that group of the 12 is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Right? And what Jesus says to them is, again, very to the point and poignant, very plunges to the issue. And he says to them, unless you're like little children, you will not be great in the kingdom of heaven. If you want to be first in God's kingdom, and we associate first with greatness, right? If you want to be first, you have to be last. If you want to live, you have to die. If you want to gain life, true life, real life, abundant life, eternal life. If you want to gain life, you have to lose your life. And that's what he was saying to the rich young ruler that day. If you want to gain real greatness, then you have to give up what you think is your greatness right now. Your money, your possessions. What's another word for that? Replacing the real greatness with a false greatness. Idolatry, right? Isn't it? So, we see in all these behaviors the infancy or the immaturity or the wrong beliefs or the misplaced value in all these situations. 
And so those are examples of what we would call overt pride, right? That's the first way that people seek after greatness. The second way that people seek after greatness very often is called acedia. Acedia. Uh, Acedia is related to the word ascetics. You guys know who the ascetics were? Or the monastics, right? We know, like monks. Monks who hung out in monasteries. They had an ascetic lifestyle. They had a life that was full of ascedia. Now, ascedia is marked by an abstinence, like abstaining from all so-called worldly pleasures, right? So if people are like the disciples seeking after greatness by arguing about who is the greatness, if they are seeking after greatness like Cain by murdering the one who is supposedly greater, right? If they are seeking after greatness by um, attaining as much monetary clout as they possibly can. The ascetics will see what is inherently wrong with that. They see the idolatry, they see the overt pride, and they say, well, no, I can't do that. So what I must do is regress, pull back, and not be those things. And if I'm not overtly proud, then I'm great. But what people who ascribe to the view of ascetia don't see, what ascetics and monk lifestyles don't often understand, is that ascetia is the same thing as overt pride expressed in a different way. Do you see, because what they're ultimately doing is the focus is still self. I am not going to be all of these things that I see because of me, because what I can attain. I will then, by abstaining, I will become pious, I will become righteous. I will become great by not being everything that I see these proud people do. And I think that is very often in the church and very often in idolatry deep within our hearts. And how this shows up is disengagement, uh, laziness, because... Laziness is a result of that pulling back. Not loving others. Not contributing to the welfare of the body of Christ. Do you see the disengagement? But it's the same thing. It's still making the self the idol. Both are infantile. Paul gave the image in Ephesians 4 right here of an infant that is tossed to and fro by the waves of doctrine, right? And how does an infant 
walk. Because remember, we're talking about walking here. An infant walks, if you ever see it, it's very unstable. It's very uncoordinated, right? It's not something that you can depend on, right? Uh, It's pretty darn cute, though, but... (laughs) It's fine for an infant, but if you see an adult walking like an infant, is that a problem? (laughs) Like an adult out there wobbling around, like <laughs> like the right foot is trying to go left and the left foot is trying to go right. And, you know, it works for an infant. But if we see an adult doing infant-like things, we're like, oh, yeah, that's not, you shouldn't, <laughs> you shouldn't be doing that. It's not quite so cute when it's an adult doing it. Well, now, let's, uh, let's read a portion of what Paul is saying here. Verse 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. This says shepherds and teachers. Some translations will say pastors and teachers. And it doesn't necessarily distinguish between the two. So sometimes uh, people often classify it as teaching pastors. That is one thing. It's mashed up. I'm not going to mash that one up in words. Um, Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, which is to the measure of the full of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what Paul identifies here as maturity is the full stature of Christ. What is the measure of true greatness? The measure of true greatness is the one who was on high and descended to lead the captives on high. Does that make sense? His greatness was in not making much of himself and everything that he could be, not making much of his own righteousness, but descending into the lower regions, that's the earth, entering into this place of overt pride and self-righteous, ascetic people, going into that, becoming that for our sake, taking that to, to the cross for our sake, living the life that we should have lived and dying the death that we should have died. Something that we just are completely undeserving of. That's the gospel. And the gospel paints a different picture of what greatness is. And what Paul urges us in this section of scripture is basically in light of everything I've just told you, one through three, In light of who I've 
told you you are in light of the identity that I've formed and reminded you of and the truth that I've told you. Now you are to walk that out. Now you are, because of the gospel, you are to walk differently in the world. Because you're not striving to assert yourself as better than others or refrain to assert yourself as better than others. You can now walk out Christ's gospel. And because you're doing that, you will walk out of sync and out of rhythm and very differently than the world around you. This is what brings in the metaphor of being salt and light. Salt changes its environment. Light changes its environment because it brings a different presence. Now, a community or a group of people who is no longer seeking out the greatness that the world has to offer, as if greatness could be found in what is lower, what Christ descended into, if, as if greatness is available in the descended, in the descent. A community of people now finding true greatness in the ascended Christ can find an identity in him, find a purpose in him, find a different kind of lifestyle and a different walk because of him. And the gospel changes our identity, our walk, the way we conduct ourselves, the way we interact with each other. The way that we bless the world because we have been blessed. And he says this right here in verse 15. And I think this is a really awesome image of this true greatness. Verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ For whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Or some translations say, as it edifies itself in love. This vision that Paul is giving is a vision of people, Christians, Formed and founded in Christ, who understand what true greatness is, which is not self-seeking, self-promotion, outdoing others, or being more, more righteous, morally righteous, and more of a good person than others. But a people founded in this, who are then walking this out in the path of maturity. And what does the end look like if we're walking on that path of maturity it's the it looks like the person who went before us and who is that the person of Jesus so he's saying true greatness is being mature just like Christ reaching the full stature of Christ You see, greatness is not something that can be found in the world into which Christ descended. Greatness had to come into the world 
to show the people who were captive what real greatness looks like. And then once he showed them what true greatness looks like, he could then lead the captives out of captivity and ascend on high. And because he ascended on high, we can then ascend with him on high into true greatness. Not man-made greatness, not fa uh, fabricated greatness, not something that we can achieve by our efforts and by the works of our hands. No, but true greatness, greatness that is from on high. And when we understand this, and when we make it a part of our identity, and when we make it an understanding of who we are and the way that we live and the way that we walk, we can be a community of people not seeking self, but seeking the benefit of others. And a community of, or a group that is more concerned with seeking the benefit of others is a group that builds itself up in love. That's the image that he gives us. That edifies itself in love. Right? If it's not one-upsmanship of how I can outdo you, but it's one-upsmanship of how I can selflessly bless you more. Right? Because I've been blessed with so much. That's the image that he gave us. This is why he said back in his prayer in chapter 3, that I want you to know the height and breadth and depth and length of Christ's love. I want you to know every dimension of Christ's love. Because when you understand that, you will be strengthened in your inner being. You will not be striving outwardly for all these things, for what the world has to offer. But in being strengthened in your inner being, you will have a peace and you will have a presence. And you will not have this infantile one-upsmanship that we see in the disciples and Cain and Abel and the rich young ruler. When Jesus says to us, sell all your possessions and follow me. We'll say, okay, no problem. Right? I can't find identity. I can't find worth. I can't find greatness in those things. So why on earth would I hang on to them? As if those will make me redeemed. As if those will lead me on high. As if those will bring me to the full stature of Christ. Which they won't. So this list that he gives in verse 2. If we're doing all of this, it will look like what he says in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If we understand true greatness and we're walking it out, it will look like those things. Humility, patience, bearing with one another in love. Striving in the spirit to maintain the unity of the body and the bond of peace. Right? Because those things are inherently other-centered. A humble person does not think much of himself. Or he does not think little of himself. He does not have the overt pride, which is much of yourself. Or the ascetic pride. Very little of yourself. Poor me. Woe is me. Which is still self-focus. 
which is not true greatness, not the love of Christ, and not what Paul says about being strengthened in your inner being. These things are inherently other-centered, others-benefiting. So walking these out, walking in a manner worthy of this calling, the calling that Christ placed on us as he came down to where we are and went on high, and he called us to follow in his footsteps, to reach the full stature of Christ. Now this body of which he has head, being rooted and grounded in his love, knowing exactly who they are, not striving for the things of the world, can build itself up in love with these gifts that he says he's given us. Prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers. These gifts, when operated through true greatness, bear the marks of being other-centered to benefit the body, to build it up in love. To be other-centered and and benefit you more than it is benefiting me. Right? Does that make sense? So, these gifts are important. Understanding who we are is important. Who we are plus our gifts plus following after Christ and supporting one another in the process. And humility and patience and bearing with one another in love. And not jumping all over you for your mistakes but encouraging you to get up and keep walking with us because we're going somewhere. And we're being something and we're doing something. This is true greatness. And you only can achieve true greatness When you put the greatness of others before yourself. Make sense? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for what you have done for us. Lord, that you descended to the earthly regions and you have set us free. God, you have demonstrated your love to us and now we love because you first loved us Lord so help us each to discover our gifts help us to see how we can be a contribution to the body of Christ help us to see how we can maintain the unity and benefit the other and walk in humility and patience and understanding love God so that one day we can achieve the truest greatness. Now one day we can stand before you and you can say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Make this the deepest desire of our hearts. And God, if we stray from that, bring us back. I pray that you build up your body at tree of life or teach us all to walk in true greatness and to edify each other in love in your precious son's name amen